Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Some commentaries like to split this up because you've got the sign of the covenant and then you've got the promise of Isaac, but we're going to take it in one shot. What the heck? So Genesis chapter 17, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, please give your attention as I read God's word this evening. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you, your descendants after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, 
all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. So just as I finally got used to saying Abram, now I'm going to have to try to get used to saying Abraham. <laughs> Good. I had a pastor that said years ago, he said, Sarai said meant Meg. No, they both mean princess. He said Sarai meant Meg. <laughs> I don't know where he got Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, her name means princess. There, there is a little, there is actually, you're like, well, she went from princess to princess. But uh, in the Hebrew, Sarai, the way it's written, um, the suffix on the end could be a possessive, like my princess. That's like what her father named her when she was born, my princess. Now, by being called princess with Sarah, it's just sort of like a more generic. In other words, she's no longer her father's princess. She's now mother of, she will be the mother of kings. So, there, I blew a, I blew a card that I had I was going to save, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more. But here you have it, Genesis 17. Uh, we are cooking with gas now as we're moving along here. Um, Obviously, what you see here is the establishment, the final formalization of the covenant. The covenant that God promised in Genesis 12, the covenant that he sort of ratified himself in Genesis 15. Now he gives a sign that seals these promises. Uh, as we saw with the Noahic covenant, there is a sign that, is, that it comes with every covenant. With the, uh, the Adamic covenant in the garden, the sign, in a sense, was the tree. The tree was the, the, the sign that uh, indicated that there was a covenant between God and Adam. Had he left the tree alone, blessing. Because he ate of the tree, death and cursing. Uh, with the Noahic covenant, God establishes a bow in the sky. Uh, that, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense, what he is doing, he's laying aside his battle bow. Uh, and, and he made a promise to no longer... Uh, wipe out the world from the, the flood of waters. And now you're going to have here the establishment of the covenant uh, with Abraham, and the sign of that covenant is circumcision. But just a brief recap, because it's been a while, it's been about a month, right, since <laughs> when we, we looked at this. So Genesis 16, if you remember Genesis 16, uh, you had uh, the plans of Sarai, you had uh, the consent of Abram, you had the um, instance with uh, Hagar fleeing, and you had the God who sees. And in that passage, the promise at the end of Genesis 15 that Abram would have a descent, that his descendants would be as the stars uh, in the sky, um, he begins to sort of doubt. He begins to doubt that because he's been in the promised land, give or take, 
about 13 years or so, or 10 years or so, I should say. Uh, and, and Sarai is starting to believe, well, maybe God's promise to, to Abram doesn't include me. Maybe it's just a promise that he would have descendants. So uh, maybe we need to sort of help this along. If I'm not the one who's going to give him children, because apparently I'm barren and apparently I can't bear children, uh, he can sleep with my uh, Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. And Abram's like, yep, okay, whatever. Sounds like a good plan to me. Um, And they concoct this plan. And they have a child named Ishmael. Now, I mean, the the greater moral of the story here, of course, is that you are not going to be able to fulfill God's promises on your own. God made a promise to Abram that he would have children, not through his own uh, undertaking. And the reason behind this is because this is the line of promise. This is the line of the covenant, as we're going to see here. And God is is, is in the business of doing the impossible. And Isaac, in a way, is going to be a quote-unquote impossible child. Um, and, and that's the case with virtually all the patriarchs. Okay, They're, Every woman married to one of these three patriarchs suffers some form of barrenness and has to go through a period of trial to to show that it is God is the one who is doing this. It's not their doing. Okay, So... Um, they concoct this plan. And if you remember when we looked at this, right, everyone was at fault. No one was, was blameless in this situation, right? Uh, Sarai's plan was, was bad from the get-go. You can't help God along. Abram should have said, no, Sarai, we're going to trust in the Lord. But he's like, yeah, whatever. And poor Hagar, uh, who was not consented in this at all, well, once she realizes that she's about to have a child, she begins to sort of uh, go neener, neener to Sarai, right? It's like, well, I don't know what your problem is. I, you know, I'm able to bear children. And she despised her, hand, her, her mistress. So all three are at fault here. The only hero of the story, of course, is God, right? Uh, when, when Hagar flees with the child, uh, God is the one who comes out to her. God is the one who sees. God is the one who remembers. God is the one who, who hears her cries. And God is the one who sort of in a sense, fixes this situation. So uh, you had the plans, the consent, the Hagar fleeing, and then you have the God who sees. Well, now we come into Genesis 17, and again, the story is continuing. This is just a continuing story of uh, God now working through Abraham and his offspring. It was um, you know, originally with Adam, that failed. Then it, uh, the world was preserved through Noah. Uh, the line of descent went from Noah to all the way down to uh, Abram. And then Abram is called, and he is going to be God's vehicle of blessing to the world. Now, it's not Abram that's going to be the blessing. He is the one who is going to bring blessing to the world through his descendant, through his seed, which, you know, if you were with us when we went through Galatians on Sunday morning, that seed is Christ. It is, he is the one who is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. So, here you have the formalization of the covenant as the covenant sign uh, is given. And the Lord also then brings, in, 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 or should say, announces or foretells the child of promise. So the Abrahamic covenant is sealed and the child of promise is foretold. That's what we're going to see here. 
Now your outline, you have four points there. Um, the first two deal with the covenant part. So you've got God's part, Abraham's part. The last two uh, deal with sort of God's promises and Abraham's response or his obedience. Um, so we're going to look at the, at, at the covenant first in verses 1 through 8 is God's part. Now, Genesis 17 here, of course, begins by telling us that Abraham was 99 years old. So he's 99 years old. Now, if you just look at chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old. So we've got in that little white space between Genesis 16, 16 and Genesis 17, 1, in that little white space there, you've got 13 years. 13 years have passed by. 13 years. And guess what? How many children does Abram have? One, right? <laughs> How many children of promise does Abraham have? None, right? He's been waiting, 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 waiting. Still no child of promise. Not only has 13 years passed from Genesis 16, he's been in the promised land now 25 years. 25 years, give or take, have passed since Genesis 12.1, since he was called out of his home. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you know, when you live 175 years, I guess 25 years isn't all that much. Uh, I don't know what that works out to. One-eighth, one-seventh of your lifespan? No, yeah, one-seventh of your lifespan. Um, but he, here he is, 25 years, and still the promise of God here has yet to be fulfilled, at least from Abraham's reckoning. And of course, you know, as, we're, as we all know, right, uh, God works in his own timing, right? <laughs> uh, God does not work on our timing. Um, and that's a good thing. Because if, we worked, if God worked on our timing, then the world would be messed up, right? Ishmael would be the child of promise, and, you know, I mean, everything would just be all messed up. God works in his own timing. And through all of this, and oftentimes when God says, wait, when we're waiting on the promises of God, it's this whole waiting is, in itself is like a trial that is strengthening our faith, that is, that is causing us to rely or should to rely more and more on the God who makes these promises. So it's 13 years have passed by. Abram is 99 years old, and we see here the Lord appears. And we're not told what form he appears. Uh, this is almost certainly some form of theophany. Because uh, as he appears, you see later on, I believe in verse uh, 22, uh, God went up from Abraham. So he must have come down in some physical manifest, uh, manifested form. And note what he's, he, he introduces himself. Okay? He says here, look, he appears to him and he says, I am Almighty God. Now, you know this because you've got a footnote there, too. But basically, he's saying here, I am El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. We have a song in our hymnal, El Shaddai, right? I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Now, he has named himself in other times, too, right? To Hagar, he is the God who sees, the God who hears, right? Uh, earlier, uh, uh, he is... Uh, 
Um, well, I wish I should have written these down, but here he is. He names himself here. I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. And then he calls Abraham here, walk before me and be blameless. That idea of blameless is uh, it's used often in the sacrificial system to talk about uh, the animals that are without blemish, animals that are complete or whole. Be blameless. Be blameless. Now, when he reveals himself as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, this is, of course, speaking of his omnipotence. This is speaking of God's almighty power. The God who, whose arm cannot be contained, whose right hand, his strong right hand and his outstretched arm cannot be stopped. The God who speaks and things happen. Right? Uh, we see this in various places in Scripture, but one in particular I'd like to look at is Matthew 19. Matthew 19 is uh, Jesus. Uh, that is Matthew's version of the uh, rich young ruler. And you know how that story goes. In Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, now behold, one came and said to him, as Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Verse 17, So Jesus said to the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and, your and, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Now, obviously, the context here is the salvation of the rich young ruler. Um, in that culture, of course, if you were blessed, you were considered, if you were rich, you were considered blessed by the Lord. So the fact that this man turns away and Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man into the kingdom, the disciples are like, well, this guy can't get in. I mean, he's obviously blessed. Look at him. He's got many possessions and who can be saved and that's when Jesus drops the bombshell it's like with men this is impossible now imagine this is the Lord <laughs> this is the Lord of glory himself talking to his disciples and saying you can't save yourselves you can't earn your way in right you can't do because that's what the guy comes he says what shall I do that I may have eternal life and the guy just and Jesus says well just do the law right easy peasy right just do the law and he's like, well, I've done it, right? It's like, no, not really. <laughs> not if you actually understand the law and what it requires of you. But the point I want to make here is that El Shaddai is the one who can save, right? With God, all things are possible. 
with God, all things are possible. He is El Shaddai. And this is going to be, uh, this is going to play a big, important part in a moment. So he comes to him and announces, uh, he uh, introduces himself, I should say, as Almighty God. And then he says, walk before me and be blameless. And he goes on in verse 2. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So here he reestablishes the covenant and fleshes out the covenant in verses 2, 3, and 4. You know, he says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now, in in the middle of there, of course, you got verse 3. When he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. Once he says that, I love Abram's response. Abram fell on his face. That's, that's a posture of complete submission. He falls on his face. He falls on his face. And God continues to talk to him. So he, he in a sense, shows uh, obedience. He shows Deference. He shows complete submission as he falls on his face in worship. He worships the fact that God Almighty comes to him and speaks to him. That God Almighty comes down to him and says, I will make my covenant with you, Abraham or Abram. See, I keep doing that. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go back and forth and use those names interchangeably. But God Almighty, again, the one for whom nothing is impossible, is condescending to come down to this man, this man whom he created out of the dust of the earth, and to make a covenant with him. Of course Abram's going to fall on his face. What other response is there when the God of the universe comes to you and says, I will make my covenant with you? and will multiply you exceedingly. This is, again, uh, uh, the continuation of what was promised in Genesis 12. Leave your home. Go to the land that I will show to you. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. I will multiply you. I will make you great, and your name shall be great. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Then in Genesis 15, 6, when, when uh, Abram's complaining about the fact that he has no descendants, and God says, look at the stars and count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. And then Abram says, you know, the scripture said that Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteous. And it's because of that, notice the, again, I'm kind of going back and forth here a little bit, but notice the flow here. When, when God tells him, walk before me, be blameless, it is already because Abram's blessed. It is already because Abram has been declared righteous. See, all of this obedience flows out of the grace that God has already shown to him. It flows out of the covenant that he has already, in a sense, made with him. It flows out of the blessing that he has already given to him. Because he is justified, because he has been blessed, because he has been called out, he says, now walk before me and be blameless, and I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Now, this fleshed out nature of the covenant is that, uh, first of all, here you see a change of name, right? Verse 5, no longer shall your name be Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, or father of a multitude. 
for I have made you a father of many or a multitude of nations. So he changes his name from exalted father to father of a multitude. Now commentators like to talk about this, so I'll talk about it. But yeah, I mean, imagine Abram, right, even before Ishmael's born. And he's sitting there in the promised land, a nomad in his tent, and some visitor comes by. And of course, what you're supposed to do when a visitor comes by is, well, you show hospitality, right? You invite them into your tent and you lay out a feast for them. And they say, so this guy says, well, my name is Abdul. What's your name? He says, well, name, my name is Abram. Oh, exalted father. How many children do you have? Oh, zero. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, how's that working for you? <laughs> you know, and then, you know, later on, it's like, well, you know, maybe another visitor comes, you know, 13 years later. Uh, how many children? I've got one now. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, and it's like, but now your name's Abraham. You're a father of many nations. You know, again, this is this, this gap, right? We've been, as we've been looking at this, we've been looking at the gap between promise and reality. God has made a promise to Abram or Abraham, yet the reality has yet to catch up to it. That's where faith is. That's where faith comes. Right? So here he changes his name. And this is not something that is unusual. God is in the business of changing names. Right? God changes Abram to Abraham. God changes Jacob to Israel. God changes Peter or uh, Simon to Peter. Uh, Paul, Saul to Paul. We each have a new name. Right? You know, we each have the name Christian for one. Uh, but also we have a name that is sealed to us as well. God likes to change names. And notice also that the name changes based on what God has done. Uh, verse 5 again, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, he's not a father of many nations yet. But from God's perspective, he is a father of many nations because for God, time is, I don't want to say meaningless, but it, it, he's outside of time. Right? He, the promise is, you know, when he makes his promise, it's already a done deal. It's going to happen. That's the point. That's the point. It's going to happen. You are a father of many nations. Verse 8, he reiterates the land promise. As he says, Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. Now this is not the first time he's made the land promise. He made it in chapter 12, made it in chapter 13, made it in chapter 15. Here you go again, chapter 17. I will give you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Again, this is a covenant for God to be God to a, to a people. Right, and then the people will, you know, it, it, this is this is the covenant language, right? I will be God to you, and you will be my people. Uh, it's what Christ, uh, when you know, the whole image between Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Uh, this is the covenant language that you see throughout uh, uh, the scriptures. Leviticus twenty six twelve talks about it. Hebrews eight verse ten, which cites Jeremiah thirty one. This is what God wanted from the very beginning. This is what God wanted when He created you know, Adam, was to have a people 
to whom he can shower blessings and and show his love and show his grace upon them uh, to be their God and they would be his people. And this is what we are looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be uh, with God forever. He will be our God. We will be his people for all eternity. Now I find it interesting here. uh, If you... Turn back to chapter 15, verse 16, 15 and 16 of chapter 15. Now this is again in, in reiteration of the land promise here. Um, in verse 13 he says to Abram, Know that certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. So this is foretelling the exodus, the, the, the captivity in Egypt. Um, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possession. They plundered the Egyptians as they left. Verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now I mention this because it seems when God talks about the land promise here, He says, in a sense, that Abram's not going to see the fulfillment of that promise. I mean, that's the whole point of this. It's going to be fulfilled in his descendants. Yet, if you look at the way he words it in chapter 17, verse um, uh, 8, And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. I give to you the land in which you are a stranger. Abraham will not possess the land. The only thing he's actually going to own is the burial plot that he's going to put his wife in. Right? He does not, he will not own or possess this land. He will be a sojourner in this land his entire life. Yet, if you consider what the author of Hebrews says, which is, which is interesting. As we see here, the land promise made, this is explained in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 through 10, and then also 13 through 16. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, by faith, he, Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I didn't want to read verses 9 and 10. So here we see that though the land promise was given to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. And that's what you get when you drop down to verses 13 through 16. These, so far all the people that have been mentioned, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, whereas assured of them, embraced them and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly 
country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham, though he has been given this land promise, the land promise is something that points forward to a greater fulfillment, which is the heavenly city, the heavenly uh, land, the land whose, uh, the city whose builder is God, the, the heavenly country. Uh, but here, he is talking, uh, God is talking specifically about the land of Canaan here. It will be given to his descendants after him. Uh, we see the essence of the covenant. Again, we mentioned that I will be a God to you and you shall be my people. So as we bring this first point to a close, God Almighty here is our covenant-making and promise-keeping God. But again, God's promises are fulfilled in his timing. Our waiting for them is one of the tools that God uses to refine our faith. God refines our faith as we wait upon his promises. Again, our timing is not God's timing, and we need to uh, learn this application that we see here uh, from this passage as well. So that's God's part. God makes a covenant. He affirms the promise uh, again to the covenant. He calls Abraham to covenant faithfulness, to walk before him and be blameless. And now we're going to see Abraham's part in verses 9 through 14. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is, at its heart, it is a gracious covenant. Okay, we've seen this so far. God makes a promise to him in Genesis 12. <clears throat> in Genesis 15, <clears throat> when the covenant is ratified, it is a one-sided ratification. It is a unilateral covenant in which God himself is the one who walks through the animal pieces when he sets up the covenant ceremony. It is a unilateral covenant. It is at its heart a gracious covenant. But here, we're going to see, in a sense, a works principle that is introduced here in verses 9 through 14. And this works principle is going to be tied into the land promise, if you will. So in verse 9, God tells Abraham here, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And what is the covenant? This is my covenant, verse 10, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So they like to do a lot of repeating. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. That's Abraham's part. That's the part that Abraham and his descendants after him are to play. They are to keep the covenant, that word there, to keep shamar, to keep, to guard, to observe. It's the same word that is used of the priests. They are to keep the temple. It is the same word used of Adam as he is to keep and tend the garden. Abraham here is to keep and observe the covenant. The, the stipulation of the covenant here is circumcision. He has to take upon himself and upon every male in his household, whether bought with his money, whether born through him, whether adult or child, they must be circumcised. The terms of the covenant that Abraham is to keep is defined by the, the sign of circumcision. This sign marks Abraham and his household as belonging to God. Now, it's not that circumcision was somehow never performed before. It is that God is taking this sign and he's saying, you will put a mark in your flesh that will mark you off as mine. And there's going to be some things that are symbolized or signified in this uh, sign of the covenant. As I mentioned earlier, every sign has a covenant, and this sign, in a sense, served three purposes. 
The first is that it marked membership into the covenant community. You could not be part of this covenant community at this point unless you were circumcised. Anyone who wanted to come in and be a proselyte would have to be circumcised before they can uh, take part of being in the covenant community. It also pointed to the holiness that is required of them and the judgment for sin. In, in a sense, the cutting away of the flesh in circumcision is supposed to be symbolic of you cutting away the sins in your life, as you cutting away those things that are displeasing to God. And in a sense, also, it marked judgment, because uh, in the cutting away of the foreskin, it's like you either take that mark upon you, or you are cut off right from the people. That's what we see in verse 14. Anyone who is not circumcised in the flesh of their foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And it also speaks of the everlasting nature of the covenant. It's, it's not a sign that you can undo easily. right? Once, once you're marked, you are marked. Okay? Um, and you, so you've got this. It, it's a sign of membership in the covenant community. It, is, it points to the holiness required and the judgment of sin, and it speaks of the everlasting nature of the covenant. Now, all male members of Abraham's household were to receive the sign, and all male descendants who were born into his household uh, on the eighth day, they were to be uh, circumcised. That's why Paul, when he's talking about his, you know, his resume, about how Jewish he is, I'm the, Jew, I'm the most Jewish person you've ever seen, and among those many things that he brags about, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day like a great, you know, like a good Jew. Not like he had any choice in the matter, but he's still bragging about it anyway. I was circumcised on the eighth day. So all members of the household, whether they are servants, bought with his money, if you are in the household, if you are part of his family, you were male, you were circumcised. If you weren't, you were cut off. That's the point here. Now, while the promise of God, of course, is unconditional, right? I mean, God is going to keep his promise. God is going to give him descendants. God has already pronounced Abraham as just uh, because of his faith. He is, he is righteous because of his faith. This part of the covenant here, as I said, the Abrahamic covenant has a conditional element to it that is tied to the land. Again, I, I point you out to verse 14. If you are not circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, you are cut off. And that just that you that means you are not part of the people. Oftentimes, it meant you would you, know, you would you would be killed. Uh, you have broken covenant with me. A um, couple of examples to um, uh, highlight this. Um, if you flip over to Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26. Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26. Now, this is uh, Moses. He's been called by God, right? He's seen the burning bush. He's been commissioned by God. You will go and you will uh, deliver my people. You will bring them out of Egypt. You will go to Pharaoh and demand that my people be released. And after a back and forth, you know, Moses finally says, you know, God's not taking no for an answer. Okay. He comes up with every excuse that he can think of. And finally, you know, he's like, no, go. So he's going. But on the way, verse 24, chapter 4 in Exodus. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Okay, now you're thinking, it's like, wait a second here. <laughs> 
You just called me to be your deliverer for your people. Now you're out to get me? What's going on here, Lord? Then Zipporah took a sharp stone as Zipporah's his wife. Um, I'm sure you guys know that, right? Because one of your grandchildren's name, Zipporah. Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, that is the Lord, let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of circumcision. Okay, and what's going on here? Okay. Moses had a son. I think he had two sons. I don't know if both of them are mentioned here. But he, at this point, at least one son. The son was uncircumcised. Moses cannot be the deliverer of God's people and bring his people to the, to the promised land if he is not in covenant with the Lord. And he is not in covenant with the Lord if, if, if his children are not circumcised. His children needed to be circumcised. And in this case, this had to happen or else he cannot be, he certainly cannot, they cannot enter the promised land because they are not keeping covenant. And he cannot serve as, the, as God's deliverer for his people in this case. One more example of this is in Joshua chapter 5. I'm not going to read this whole passage here, but in Joshua chapter 5, essentially what's going on here is this, right? Okay, so Moses led them up to the banks of the Jordan River on the plains of Moab. Then the Lord uh, takes Moses away. Moses is dead. Uh, Joshua is commissioned to lead the people. They cross the Jordan uh, and they consecrate themselves. Um, I don't think he's had the, no, he hasn't had the conversation with the commander of the Lord's army yet. And before they can go and take the promised land, before they can even, before they even draw their swords for the first time, there is a covenant renewal. As we see here in chapter 5, if you've got chapter headings, you may see there the second generation circumcised. That entire generation, all the males in that entire generation are circumcised and they celebrate the Passover. What's going on there? So, well, they're about to enter the promised land and take, well, actually, in fact, they're already there. They're on the, the, the west side of the Jordan. They're about to take over the promised land, yet that generation, the generation that was born in the wilderness, had not yet been circumcised. So they need to be in covenant with the Lord before they can go and take over the promised land. So you've got this conditional element tied to the land, and that is circumcision in this case. Now, circumcision, of course, as we say, is a sign and a seal. It is, it is, in a sense, sacramental in that sense. It's a sign that points to something, and it's a seal that uh, takes those promises that, that, are in, uh, that the sign is pointing to and um, sort of presses them upon the people if they're received by faith. Circumcision is a sign and seal of the promises of God to be received by faith. Circumcision does not save Right? You are not saved if you're circumcised. How do I know this? Ishmael was circumcised. Is Ishmael part of the line of promise? No. Right? Esau was circumcised. Is Esau part of the line of promise? No. There are many people who were circumcised, yet they are not saved. But it points to an inward reality. And what inward reality is that? Uh, if you want to note this reference down, it's Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 
But in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, you see here, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The idea of the circumcision in the flesh was, in a sense, to be a point to the inward reality of having your heart circumcised, to have your heart open and soft and receptive to the Lord. So it, is, it, it points to this inward reality uh, there. Now, of course, there is a link between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision is a sign of the Old Covenant. Uh, baptism is a sign of entry into the New Covenant. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2 makes this link very uh, clear, where in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul there says, In him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you've got this connection as circumcision in the foreskin is points to the circumcision of the heart. Here you have also baptism, which is being connected here as a sign of the new covenant. You are uh, baptized with water in the sign, which points to a, an inward reality of being baptized in union with Christ, being uh, uh, buried with him in his death and being raised with him, as Paul will say in Romans 6. You are buried with him in a death like his. You will be raised in a resurrection like his. So you've got this connection, whereas circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism now becomes the sign of the new covenant. In a, in a sense, that bloody sacrament in the old covenant is no longer necessary because the blood of Christ has been shed and you no longer need to have a bloody sacrament that uh, initiates one into the covenant community. You now have baptism. But both again, both of these are signs and seals of the covenants they represent. They point to a reality that, that the symbol uh, it represents, and they seal to you promises of God that are received by faith. So that is the covenant. God's part, I will be a God to you, you will be my people, I will give you the land. Your part, Abraham, is to circumcise uh, all the males in your family. And now we get to the uh, the... The promise of the child to come in verses 15 through 21. God makes a promise. And again, this promise is unconditional. Okay, I want to be clear here. This promise is unconditional. It's not tied to circumcision. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So God, again, changing a name. She is no longer the princess of her father, but she is now the princess, in a sense, of the nations that will come and I will bless her and also give you a son by her then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations kings of people shall be from her and Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old and shall Sarah who is ninety years old bear a child and Abraham said to God oh that Ishmael may live before you we'll stop there for now so Sarai receives a name change as well. Um, I know I already mentioned the subtle differences, but God here says, now, again, now think about this, okay? 
Remember, when we looked at chapter 16, we, we speculated that perhaps Sarai's planning was initiated by the fact that maybe she thought she was not the one to be the, 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 the wife or the woman that would bear children for Abraham. So she concocts this plan with Hagar. But God is saying, look, no, she's going to be the one that's going to give you this child. Right? She's going to be the one that's going to give you this child. That's why, that's why the Lord introduces himself to Abraham as God Almighty. Is anything impossible with God? God is going to take a woman who is 90 years old and she is going to bear a child. That's why Abraham's laughing. It's like, this is, this is outrageous. This is unbelievable. How can a man who is 100 and a woman who is 90 bear a child? Is anything too hard with God? Is anything too hard with God? No. God can do this. This is, God called the world into existence. This is nothing. This, this is, this is, this is, nothing is impossible with God. So she receives a name change. This child is, it's, it's not going to be the one from the slave woman. It's going to be the one from your own wife. She will bear you a son. Kings shall come from her. Did kings come from her? From her? Yes. Many kings came from her. Because she is the mother of you know, the Jewish people and others. But she is the mother of the Jewish people through Isaac, her son, who eventually gives birth to King David, who eventually gives birth to Jesus Christ. She is, yes, she will be, kings shall come from her. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The child of promise is foretold by Abraham's covenant-making and promise-keeping God Almighty. I am God Almighty. I am the one who will bring this child to be. I am the one who is making covenant with you. I am the one who is making a promise with you, with you, and I will keep my promises. As we saw here, Abraham's response is laughter. Perhaps disbelief mixed with awe and wonder. Again, that is why he is... God Almighty. I like the way Paul talks about it in Romans 4, where he says in Romans 4, verses 18 and following, who, that is Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. God is God Almighty. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed earlier when God said that your descendants will be as the stars in the sky. And he believed here as well when he said, no, your wife Sarah shall have a child. And in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. God is God Almighty. 
That's why I tend to think maybe this is not pure disbelief. I think the laughter might be a laughter of awe and wonder at the fact that God is going to perform this. God is going to perform this. And think about it, because as you know, you have a footnote, you've probably been told this a million times before, Isaac means to laugh. Right? His name means laughter. So think about that. Every time you call his name, you are remembering what God has done here in this chapter. Every time he's like, Isaac, time to come home for dinner. Isaac, it's supper time. Isaac, have you done the, your chore? Every time his name is mentioned, Abraham and Sarah are going to remember, yes, we laughed because God is able to do the impossible. He is able to give a child to a man who is 100 years old and to a woman who is 90 whose womb is as good as dead. But at this point here, perhaps there is a little bit of disbelief because Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live. Oh, that Ishmael might live. It's like, look, we've got a kid here. (laughs) We can just work with this one here. He's already here. He's 13, you know. God says, no. Verse 19, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. In other words, God's like, I'm going to make sure you remember your laughter, because you're going to name him laughter, and I will establish my covenant with him, not with Ishmael, with him, for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. But Ishmael's not forgotten. And he says here, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Now there's a play on words there, right? Because Ishmael means God hears. And God heard. <laughs> God heard. He said, yes, I have heard you. And he will be blessed. I will bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes. And I will make him into a great nation. But he's going to receive a lot of worldly blessings. He is going to be exceedingly blessed. And his, his he will be He will give birth to many nations as well. But he is not the child of promise. He is not the child of covenant. The covenant is going to go through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then God goes up and says he he left. That's what we see here. And then in verses 22 through 27, we see Abraham obeys. There's not much to go here. It just, you know, the Lord goes up. After he speaks with him, and Abraham obeys. He takes everyone out of his home and and circumcises them. And then just goes on into some detail that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. Uh, Every time I say it, I feel like every man is sort of like, you know, kind of crossing their legs or whatever when that is said. Uh, Ishmael was 13. And then, you know, it just repeats himself. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men born in his house, bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So Abraham obeys. God makes a covenant. God does, tells him what his part is going to be. Abraham has his part. He has to uh, observe the terms of the covenant, which is circumcision. God makes a promise that the child will come. Abraham Uh, responds in obedience. He responds in obedience here. So the covenant promised in chapter 12, ratified in chapter 15 here, is sealed. You're given a sign of the covenant here in chapter 17. As we mentioned before, circumcision, of course, by itself doesn't save. It is not the act of circumcision that saves. 
any more than it is the act of getting wet in baptism that saves. It is by faith you are saved. It is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And baptism is just a sign and a seal that points to those promises, the promises in the sense of baptism that you are cleansed from your sin as water cleanses the body, so the blood of Christ cleanses you from your sins. As the foreskin of your flesh is cut away, so your sins are cut away and removed from you. So it doesn't save. Both are signs and seals of promises that have to be received by faith. But our covenant-keeping God, our covenant-making God, and our promise-keeping God is God Almighty. He can do the impossible. I have a reference here. I'm just trying to figure out which reference this is. Uh, oh, it's the rich young ruler. I already did that one. I'm not going to do that one again. <laughs> not going not gonna to do that. But... Again, go back to the rich young ruler, right? What did God, what did Jesus say to his disciples? With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He is God Almighty. Nothing is beyond his ability to perform. And again, both circumcision and baptism, which are signs and seals of God's covenant with his people, also picture judgment, right? When we... When we looked at Noah's flood, we looked at how the Old Testament or the New Testament talks about it. Peter talks about how the ark, in a sense, he says, is baptism. (laughs) Because you are saved from the floods of judgment by entering the ark, just as you are, in a sense, saved from judgment by being baptized in the name of Christ. It is a sign of judgment. But Jesus was baptized, right? Not just in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized with a baptism that no one else could, could, could uh, take, right? He was baptized in God's wrath. Jesus was cut off, right? Just as circumcision is a cutting off, Jesus himself was cut off in judgment. So it is a sign of judgment. Jesus takes the actual judgment to which the sign also points. Jesus suffered for us that God could be our God and that we could be his people. Jesus took the punishment of God's wrath. Jesus took uh, the judgment that was due to us for our sin, the judgment, the sin that is cleansed in baptism that is received by faith, the sins that are cut off from us uh, in the Old Testament for circumcision. Jesus took those upon himself. He suffered for us so that we could be God's people and he could be our God. So I'll stop here. Uh, Next time, Lord willing, on the 4th of February, uh, we're going to consider chapter 18.